The Old Testament reading is Numbers chapter 29, verses 7 through 11. Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11. And this is the inerrant and infallible word of the Lord. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, see that they are without blemish. And their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement and the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 8, and this is our sermon text this morning, Romans 8, uh, verses 1 through 8. If you are visiting this morning, uh, we are working our way through Paul's epistle uh, to the Romans, and this morning we are beginning uh, with chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, The last time we were in the book of Romans, which was a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, looking at chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. And if you'll remember, in that passage, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a very sobering uh, description of the Christian life. Um, As Christians, we are engaged in a uh, continual battle against uh, the sin that still indwells in us and that uh, so often exerts such a powerful influence over us. And at times, because of this struggle with sin, because at times we do fail, we sin, um, we often, at those times, we, we feel discouraged, defeated. And uh, we may even begin uh, to doubt uh, the reality of our salvation. We say to ourselves, how can I be a Christian when once again, once more, I have Succumb to temptation. I have sinned against God in this, in this particular way, a sin that, that I hate, and yet I find myself stumbling and committing this sin over again. Uh, there are times when you may feel very much like the Apostle Paul, as he describes himself in these verses. He says, I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. 
And in those dark moments, you may ask yourself, have I truly been saved? Am I really a Christian? Uh, the apostle himself, he, he felt uh, the oppressive power of sin within him. Uh, it caused him to cry out. In verse 24, chapter 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so Paul felt that, that burden, that, that weight of uh, the sin that he, that he struggled against. But even in the depths of that struggle, Paul never lost sight of the hope that he had. And so he calls out and answer to his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul affirmed the hope that he had and that we have as Christians. that even in the midst of this struggle, we have salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a savior. And it is that hope in Christ, that hope of salvation that Paul then goes on to write about in chapter eight. Uh, Paul was always the pastor, and he knew that his readers, after describing this very uh, grim uh, reality of our struggle with sin, Paul knew that his readers, that we, that he himself needed to be reminded of uh, the hope, uh, the promises of God, uh, the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins to write what would come to be known as one of the most uh, glorious, one of the most uh, hopeful, grace-filled, encouraging uh, chapters in all of Scripture. And that is Romans chapter 8. I don't know if we uh, want to uh, venture out to say that one particular chapter in Scripture is uh, better than all the other chapters in Scripture, but if we were to endeavor to... uh, Award the title of GOAT, the greatest of all time, to one chapter of the Bible, uh, Romans chapter 8 would certainly be a prime candidate uh, for that honor. Uh, when I was a, a very new believer in Christ, somehow I came across uh, the book by uh, J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read that. It's a, it's a classic. But if you recall, in that book, uh, Rome, uh, Packer refers to uh, the book of Romans as the high peak of Scripture. You know, with all the wonderful peaks of Scripture, Romans is the highest. And then he says, Romans chapter 8 is the high peak of Romans. And other theologians have spoken in similar ways of, of the greatness of this chapter. Uh, one said the, it is the inner sanctuary of the cathedral of the Christian faith. Another said it is the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden. And the grand theme of this grand chapter in Romans chapter 8 is the assurance, the assurance that is ours as believers in Christ, that God is gracious to us, that we are right with him, that his promises to us are sure, that our salvation is secure. Uh, This chapter begins with this note of assurance that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then the chapter ends with another, uh, uh, another declaration of God's goodness to us, the assurance that we have in Christ. It ends with the, the declaration that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And how we need to hear this, how we need to hear uh, this assurance 
of God's grace, of his love towards us. Especially we need to hear it in light of the reality that we just read about in Romans chapter 7. And that assurance for us as Christians begins with knowing what is true about us. Your assurance begins with knowing for sure what is true, what the, what the scriptures declare to you to be true about you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And in our passage this morning in Romans 8, verses 1 through 8, Paul declares to us three things that are true for every one who belongs to Christ. And each one of these three, each one of these uh, three truths has to do with one of the distinct members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so first, as a Christian, you are justified by the Son. Secondly, as a Christian, you are loved by the Father. And thirdly, as a Christian, you are indwelt by the Spirit. And so we'll take one at a time. First of all, you are justified by the Son. In verse 1, Paul says this. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, when Paul says, therefore, he is looking back to what he just wrote in verse 25 of chapter 7. Uh, what he cried out there uh, when he proclaimed the hope of salvation in Christ. He said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, so we are saved in Christ Jesus. He is our salvation. And at the very heart of that salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus is the truth that the apostle has already spent so much time writing about so far in his letter to Romans that we have already looked over. And that is this truth. This is the truth that is at the heart of our salvation in Christ. And that is this, that on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as a Christian, by faith in Christ, you are justified. You are justified. Uh, just uh, to review what that means, to be justified means this, that your sins are forgiven. They are completely atoned for. They are forgiven on the basis of that sacrificial offering of Christ Jesus when he died upon the cross. And not only that, but you are counted perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ on the basis of that perfectly obedient and righteous life that Jesus lived during his time here on earth. Because, of your, because your sin and guilt is forgiven by God, uh, because you are counted uh, as righteous as Jesus himself is righteous in the sight of God, therefore, Paul can say, there is therefore no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you in the judgment of God. The sins that you have uh, committed, the sins that you committed uh, before you came to know Christ, all of those sins are completely forgiven. But not only that, all the sins that you have committed, even as a Christian, are also forgiven. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so uh, when you see yourself then, when you read that last part of Romans chapter 7, and you see yourself described there, as Paul describes that eternal, internal struggle with sin, and you see yourself sometimes failing. You must, at the also, you must also at the same time see yourself, as Paul declares to you this truth concerning you at the beginning of chapter 8, that despite your sin and failure in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. 
Notice the, the absolute, the categorical way that Paul states this in verse 1. Uh, Paul doesn't say, you know, in Jesus Christ, I think, I think we, you have a pretty good shot at being forgiven of your sins. Uh, he doesn't say, because of what Christ has done, I really like your chances on the day of judgment. I, I think there's a good chance, you have a, you have a good possibility of being forgiven. No, he declares... And it's not just the Apostle Paul declaring, but it's the Spirit of God through him. It's God himself declaring to you and to me this truth that in Christ Jesus, as a believer in Christ, you are absolutely, you are forever, you are without a shadow of doubt, forgiven. And on the day of creation, or on the day of judgment, before all creation, you can be sure that when you stand before the Lord Jesus as your judge, on the basis of his work, he will declare you before angels, before men, before the Father. He will declare you to be innocent, to be righteous, even as he himself is innocent and righteous. Now, there is no condemnation for you in Christ. There will never be condemnation for you in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on in verse 2 to tell us why there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. But Paul does so in a kind of indirect way. We kind of have to look uh, carefully at what Paul, uh, follow the logic of, uh, that, he, that he gives us here in verses 1 and 2. Uh, we might expect the apostle to say something like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus because... Uh, Jesus uh, bore that condemnation himself when he suffered and died on the cross. And of course, that is absolutely true. Uh, you are not condemned in Christ because Christ was condemned already for you. Uh, but it's also true that because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we are set free from that power of sin that leads us uh, to that condemnation and to that death. And that's the truth that Paul points out in verse 2 as the reason why we are not condemned in Christ. He says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so as a Christian, because Jesus bore your sin and guilt upon the cross, you are no longer subject to that power of sin that leads to death. Rather, you have been given the Spirit of Christ which leads to eternal life. And notice that this, this declaration, no condemnation, that this is not the word of God for everyone in the entire world. Of course, anyone who comes to Jesus, that is, that is true. But he says in verse 1 that this, this declaration, no condemnation, is specifically for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus means to be united to Jesus. And how is it that you get in Jesus? How do you become united to Jesus? It is by faith. It is by entrusting yourself entirely, wholly to the person of Christ and to his work for your salvation. It is by acknowledging that your works, your goodness, your morality count for nothing in the sight of God. But it is only the perfect righteousness of Jesus alone that can save you from your sin and guilt. And so you are justified. You receive this, 
uh, proclamation, no condemnation, by faith alone, by trusting alone in Christ alone, and not on the basis, even in part, of any works or goodness that you may bring to God. And that's what Paul has been telling us in the book of Romans. Again, Romans uh, 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And as you hear my words this morning, I want to ask you, is your one and only hope for your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you resting entirely upon Jesus as the one who can save you from your sin? Have you forsaken all um, possibility of bringing to God uh, your obedience or your uh, goodness or anything that you have done as a reason why he would save you? But have you forgotten all that, forsaken all that, and are you trusting in Jesus alone for redemption? Because no matter how good you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter how much the world praises you for being a good and decent person, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you are still condemned. There is still condemnation upon you for your sin. But when you come to Christ by faith, your sins are forgiven, and this is true for you now and forever. No condemnation. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, this is the banner that waves over you as one who believes in the Lord, who has trusted in him. No condemnation, no condemnation. God says, this is a redeemed child of mine. Uh, this one is holy. This one is righteous. I remember his sins no more. And so this is the first thing that is true for you as a Christian that you are justified by the Son. Uh, secondly, you are loved by the Father. In verse 3, uh, Paul uh, works backward uh, from speaking of uh, the work of Christ and uh, justifying us uh, to the work of the Father uh, and to the love of the Father in sending his Son into the world in the first place uh, to be our Savior. And so he says in verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Paul says in verse 3 that there is something that the law cannot do. He's speaking of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. There's something that that law cannot do for us, and that is the law cannot give us eternal life. And the law cannot give you and me eternal life, not because there is something intrinsically wrong or faulty or bad with the law, but the law is giving us, or the law is incapable of giving us eternal life, salvation, because, as Paul says, it is weakened by the flesh. The problem is not with the law, it is with the flesh. And that is with our sin, with our sin. And if you remember, this is exactly what Paul uh, described for us back in chapter 7. This dynamic between the law of God and the sin within us. When the law of God, which Paul calls holy, righteous, and good, when it is brought into our consciousness, when it is impressed upon our hearts, uh, Paul says that the sin that is within us, it rises up. 
It is stirred up by the law of God, and it produces in us all kinds of unrighteousness and direct opposition to what the law commands us to do. And so because of our sin, not because of the law's weakness, but because of our sin, we cannot gain life by the law. The law cannot save us. In fact, the law only does the opposite. It stirs up the sin within us so that we are condemned. And this is why anyone who tries to make themselves right before God by doing the works of the law or what is the equivalent by being a good person, by being a moral person, anyone who tries to establish a righteousness before God on that basis, anyone who tries to make himself right before God on the grounds of what he does or how good he is or how moral he is, uh, that person is doomed to fail. We cannot, we cannot make ourselves right with God by our own efforts. We cannot gain eternal life by our own works because the law cannot save us. It is weakened by the flesh. But what we cannot do, what the law cannot do for us, God has done. He makes us righteous. He gives us eternal life. And how does he do this? Well, Paul says in verse 3, he does it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and condemning sin in the flesh. When the eternal Son of God, uh, the eternally begotten uh, Son who is, uh, of, who is equal in power and glory with the Father, God Himself, and the person of His Son, when God came into the world, He came not just in the likeness of flesh, that is, He came not just as true man, which is certainly true, He came as true man, But Paul says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what that means is, is that although Jesus himself in his person was completely and absolutely perfectly free from all sin, he was holy and righteous from the time of his conception to the time of his resurrection. Nevertheless, he assumed our identity as sinful man. As fallen creatures. He looked just like us. He looked like a sinner. But he wasn't a sinner. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. There was a short time in my ministry years ago. When I was leading a Bible study. In a medium security prison. And when I went into the prison. To conduct this Bible study. It was obvious that I was not one of the prisoners. Because I had my regular clothes on. But all of the other prisoners, they had to wear their uh, prison garb, uh, which was like a bright orange jumpsuit. And uh, what if I had showed up to the Bible study one day uh, in an orange jumpsuit just like theirs? In a sense, I would have more fully identified with them. I would have looked the part as one who has been condemned uh, by the law uh, as guilty of breaking the law. Uh, Of course, personally, at least in the eyes of the law of the state, I would still be innocent. I hadn't really broken a law, but I would have looked like them. I would have been able to, in a sense, come alongside of them as one of them. Of course, I never would have tried that uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the guards might not have let me out of the prison. And, but that was always a great relief when I could walk out. Like, wow, this is great. I can walk out of here. These poor, these poor guys, they can't. 
But when the Son of God came to us from heaven, that is just what he did. He, he clothed himself in our prison garments as those who are condemned sinners. He was exposed to all the infirmities, the pains, the sorrows of, of living in a fallen world because of sin. Just like we are. He even experienced temptation, although temptation could not, there was nothing in his heart that it could grab onto. Nevertheless, Jesus was truly tempted, and yet he did not sin. But he knows what it's like to be tempted, as we are. And because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was able to fully identify with us, even to the point of bearing our sin and our guilt at the cross as though it was his very own, as though he sinned the sins that you have sinned, as though he was guilty of your guilt. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to redeem sinful flesh. And this offering of himself as a, an atoning, atoning sacrifice. This is what Paul refers to in verse 3 when he says that God sent his son for sin. He came to be a sin offering for us, a sacrifice to bear the condemnation of God that, that we deserved in our place. And so in that body that Jesus assumed in his incarnation, in that human body, in his flesh, God condemned sin in Christ. And so Paul says, God condemned sin in the flesh. That is the, the flesh of Jesus. And if we go back uh, in Romans a few chapters, uh, we read the reason, or at least the, the motive, if we can use that, uh, for why uh, God sent his son into the world. And, and that is because he loved us. He loved us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, this is the testimony of Jesus himself. That Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world out of the love that he had for sinners. What that means is that even when we were enslaved to our sin, even when we were God-haters, even when we had nothing to do with righteousness, God loved us and he sent us his son to die for us. But it also means that God continues to love us now as his children. And even when so often as we have been reminded in Romans chapter 7, and that struggle with sin, sometimes we stumble, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we act as though we are of the flesh, sold under sin. But even then, God continues to love you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so no matter how you may stumble in your obedience to him, you are loved by God the Father. And Paul will end this chapter on this glorious note of, of the security that is yours as one who is the object of God's love and affection. Paul says that there is nothing in all creation at the very end of chapter 8, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. There is nothing that can separate you from the love that God the Father has for you in Jesus Christ, his Son. 
And so you are justified by the Son, you are loved by the Father, and finally, you are indwelt by the Spirit. In verse uh, 4, Paul tells us what the purpose of God sending his Son into the world. He did it out of love for sinners, but what was the more immediate purpose of that gift of his Son? Uh, Verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So on the one hand, we can say that God sent a son in the world in order that we might be forgiven, so that there is no condemnation for us. And that's very true. But that's not all. God sent a son into the world, not only that we may be forgiven, but that we also might be transformed, that we might be changed from those who hate God and are rebels against God to those who love God, who seek to serve him and worship him and please him. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement of the law, all that the law requires of us is fulfilled in us when we begin to truly offer obedience to the law of God. And we only do that by the enabling power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who is given to us when by the grace of God we come to Christ for salvation. And so it is by the Spirit. It is the Spirit at work in us, the Spirit who um, gives us that heart, that will, in order to offer obedience to the Lord. So Paul says at the end of verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so we see this, um, this wonderful uh, dynamic here that um, the law of God, when we are apart from Christ, uh, the law of God uh, comes to us and it exposes to us our sin. Uh, we see how desperately we need a Savior because we cannot keep God's law. The sin within us uh, causes us to break God's law at every point. But then we go to the Savior by faith, by the grace of God, we come to Christ. And now he gives us a spirit, the spirit indwells in us so that we can begin to truly keep the law. I love the way that Augustine said this. He said, law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that law, that the law might be fulfilled. Now, what does this mean? Let's, let's, let's um, ask what this means uh, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One, you know, it, it means far, far more than simply the Spirit of Christ abides in you and, and gives you a helping hand in order to assist you in keeping God's commandments. It means so much more than that. Rather, to have the Spirit indwelling in you means that at the very deepest level of your being, You have now in Christ, by the Spirit, a radically new orientation for your thoughts, your desires, your wills, your affections. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus because of the Spirit who abides in you. According to these verses, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, without the Spirit, we are of the flesh. That is, we are controlled We are directed by the sinful passions and desires of our hearts. 
That means that our entire existence is centered upon self and unrighteousness when we are of the flesh. But now that we are of the spirit, now that we have the spirit of Christ indwelling in us, everything is radically different. Our entire orientation now, our entire existence is oriented around not self and unrighteousness, but around God and righteousness and truth and Christ. In verse 5, the the apostle compares these two radically opposed, these two radically different orientations or, or ways of being, uh, the flesh and the spirit. He says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. I actually think the English Standard Version here uh, doesn't translate this verse as well as it could. Because the, the verbs in the Greek are not to live but the verb is to be, to be. In other words, Paul isn't describing for us two ways of living, but he is describing for us two ways of being. And so the King James Version actually brings us out more accurately. Uh, this is the King James Version, verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So what this means is that in verse 5, Paul is not suddenly... Um, exhorting us or commanding us to live a certain way, but he is declaring to us that we are a certain way. He's telling us who we are in Christ, and that is, by the grace of God, we are of the Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit, and therefore, our minds are set on the Spirit. Our wills, our affections, our desires are oriented towards the Spirit of Christ. This is who we are in Christ. And to be indwelt by the Spirit... And, and therefore, by necessity, to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. This is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. In verse 6, Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And so the person who is not indwelt by the Spirit, he is spiritually dead. He is of the flesh, therefore his mind is set on the things of the flesh, and Paul calls this condition death. It is spiritual death. And then Paul goes on to explain why that is the case in verse 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so the person who is outside of Christ is one who's who is of the flesh, his mind is set on the flesh, and therefore he is an enemy of God. He is hostile to God. And not only does he not submit to the law of God, but he cannot. He is incapable of pleasing God. And so he says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so those who are of the flesh, those who are outside of Christ, not only do not please God, they cannot please God. And these verses um, absolutely close the door to any possibility that a person who is not a Christian, a person who does not believe in Christ, that they may be able, by some uh, religion, by some uh, lifestyle or morality, to please God, to serve Him, to worship Him. That is impossible. They cannot do so. So what this means is that the Christian faith is not just one way among many ways that we can come to know God and serve and worship Him, but apart from, apart from union 
with the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, there is no religion, there is no philosophy, there is no lifestyle, no morality, no ethics by which you can please God. Only through Christ can you come to God and serve him and worship him. Jesus said it in different words. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. So no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. By the same token, all who come to the Father through Jesus Christ are received by the Father. Jesus turns away no one who comes to him in faith. And for you to come to the Father through faith in his Son, if we can step back and and look at Romans chapter 8, this first part of what we've seen already, Romans chapter 7, we can step back a minute and look at it with with some perspective. Um, What what these verses are telling us is this, is that um, for you to come to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that you will no longer struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that there is no longer sin indwelling in you and exerting its influence over you at times. But it does mean that despite that, your salvation is eternally secure. You are safe in the hands of Jesus. And all that these verses tell you about yourself as a believer in Christ, these things are true for you, both when you uh, obey Christ by God's grace and you feel pretty good about your walk with Christ, but these are also true of you when you stumble, when you struggle, when you feel miserable because of your faith, because you're, you're not walking faithfully, or at least you, you stumbled in your walk with the Lord. These things are true of you at all times. As a believer in Christ, through all the peaks and valleys of your life as a Christian, these things are true of you. You are justified by the Son, you are loved by the Father, and you are indwelt by the Spirit. Let's pray.